Living Time and the Integration of the Life by Dr. Morris Nickel. We left off with only to see it internally in this way is one thing. To recognize and meet it in everyday life is quite another thing. This is probably the linchpin of all of this. This is the place where it all turns. You know, this is the center of the wheel. This is what makes the difference. There are people who see it internally. They see. Yes, I see that I'm a liar. Yes, I see that I lack integrity. Yes, I see that I'm not the nicest person in the world. But then that's one thing. To recognize and meet it in everyday life is entirely different. Acquiescing intellectually to some fact that you have read or even something that you have seen in yourself that you really genuinely observe. And then you acquiesce and say, oh yes, I know that. That's not the same thing as struggling with it, as meeting it in everyday life. It's not the same thing. Sadly, because of imagination, it is exactly the same thing to imagination. Exactly. There is no difference whatsoever. If you see it, then you are fully aware of it, you're fully conscious, you have overcome it, and you're now a perfect man. And that's how we live our lives. I hate to say it, but that's how we live our lives. And when I say we, I mean 99.9% .9 of the walking dead on this planet, the what are they, the walk, sleepwalking, what do they call it? Zombies. Zombies. <laughs> what do they call us? Machines. Let's turn to a corresponding idea about the universe as inner experience or state. Let's start to see an inner experience as a state. We're studying viewpoints gained from what we're taking as higher degrees of consciousness. If you're in a tall building, let's say 50 stories, then there are 50 floors, and each floor has a window. And the higher you go, the more the viewpoint changes. So you can see things from the third floor that you can't see from the first floor, and probably that you can't see from the 50th floor, or at least not see well. And so we're talking about that. We're talking about studying viewpoints, that is looking out the window of these different stories, these different floors. And instead of floors, we're talking about higher degrees of consciousness. That's it. So I want you to look at it that way for the time being. Don't take it too far because it's just an analogy. It's something to help us to grasp this idea more easily. We must grant to the poet the power of vision above the level of our customary conscious outlook. We don't have to. He says we must. But the truth is we don't have to. The truth is we can be obstreperous, recalcitrant. We can remain zombies kicking against the goads and self-willed morons who run through life like a bull in a china shop and wonder why nothing works out, why all those other people are such idiots and we're the only ones who know anything. Now, you have to admit, most of the people we know in the world are like that, and most of the time, we are like that. We're looking at other people like, what's wrong with them? When we need to be looking at ourselves and saying, what's wrong with me? But we can't do that in our ordinary, customary state of consciousness. If we want to see this, studying viewpoints gained from what we're taking as higher degrees of consciousness, then we must grant to the poet the power of vision above the level of our customary conscious outlook. Do you understand poetry? No, I don't usually. I, po I read poetry and I go, wow, you any good prose? Can't you just say it, man? Like, can't you just say what it is? Do you have to do it this way? On the other hand, there are some things, like I'm reading uh, Don Quixote de la Mancha, and I'm thinking, wow, 
Now, this guy wrote this in like 1612 in Spanish because he was a Spaniard, and it was translated into English by a very good translator around that time, maybe three years afterwards. So the guy was familiar with the time period. He was familiar with the Spanish of that day, the Spanish language of that day, and the English language of that day. So it's written in the English language of that day, and it's very difficult to read. But then there's a translation. I found a translation where the guy took that excellent translation that the man made. And he said, well, I wanted to have the strength, the power, the flavor of that translation because it is renowned as the best English translation there is. And he said, and I wanted to give a new translation that would keep the same impact in English of the words and of the story that it had to those people in that time in Spanish. That's a task. Anyway, I read this and I just marvel at the man's genius, at his depth, the profundity of his thought, the orderliness. It was just amazing. I'm in stitches because it's really funny. And on the other hand, there's this deep metaphysical story here. Don Quixote is in the story. Most people will, will say he's a madman. He's a madman because the reality that he sees is not the reality that the rest of us see. So, of course, that makes him a madman. And his squire, Sancho Panza, is this little fat materialist, hedonist. And all he thinks about is eating and drinking and getting something for himself. And Don Quixote, all he thinks about is righting the wrongs in the world serving justice, taking care of the people who can't take care of themselves, taking care of women in distress and orphans and weak people and old people. And he goes around and everything he sees is he's a knight. He considers himself like a knight of the round table, only a knight errant, somebody who travels around fixing things. And from our customary conscious outlook, he's nuts. He sees some people and he doesn't see the people that are there. He sees knights. Or he sees this, or he sees that. He sees a windmill, and he doesn't see a windmill. He sees this huge monster with six arms. And his squire is like, oh, I don't think that's a good idea. That's a windmill, you know. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> or I don't think that's a good idea. They're, they're not knights. They're just goat herds. And every time he says, shut up. You don't know anything you're talking about. I'm the knight. You're the squire. But I started to think about it. I thought, you know, it's amazing. I wonder, you know, of course, we are so smart today. We're so intelligent. We're so far beyond anybody who could ever write anything back in the 16th century or the 17th century. I mean, we know so much more because we have iPhones and iPads and iPods and Wikipedia and computers and the Internet, and we can find anything out in no time, in the blink of an eye. And these poor people, they didn't even have flush toilets. They didn't have McDonald's. They didn't have Starbucks. You know, they were idiots. So this is our pretty much our viewpoint. Our viewpoint meaning societies. I don't mean every person in society. The reason I paint with a broad brush is because I'm speaking in general. If I wanted to speak about one person, I'd use a finer brush, maybe with two or three sable hairs. But I'm not speaking about one person. I'm speaking about people or culture in general, where we are today, what we have fallen to. Anyway, Don Quixote, in a lot of ways, is just like your essential self. And Sancho Panza is just like the mule that your essential self is riding around, or the ass that your essential self is riding around. This carnal man that only cares about its belly, its genitals, and its pride. Whereas Don Quixote, he stays up all night to stand guard. He's vigilant. He goes without food. And Sancho Panza, he's a pig. He's a little fat pig, and all he does is eat and drink. And he would eat everything and drink everything and leave Don Quixote to eat grass in the field. For all he, he just doesn't care. And yet, he serves him. Why does he serve him? 
because Don Quixote has promised him his own island that he'll be the governor of when Don Quixote becomes world famous and some king or he conquers or whatever. And so Sancho is following him for the stuff, just like most of us live in our ordinary, customary, conscious state. We call it a conscious outlook, but it's really not. It's really an unconscious outlook. It is the outlook that has been bestowed upon us by life and by the five senses. It's not an outlook, really, a conscious outlook. At any rate, I read the story and I think, to the carnal man, to the false personality, the essential self is a moron. It's crazy. You're crazy if you think that giving everything away is a good idea. If you think that sharing with people is a good idea, you're crazy. If you think justice is a good idea, you're insane. Yes, justice for you until you need mercy. Then mercy for you and justice for him. Because we're so fragmented, we can't ever make up our minds about something. Nothing is ever the same all the time for us. For example, if I do something wrong, I should get mercy. If you do something wrong, you should get justice. This is our outlook. We're not ready to admit it as a rule. Most people are not ready to admit it, but it's an observable fact. So what he's saying is we must grant to the poet the power of vision above the level of our customary conscious outlook. Blake taught that man is in touch inwardly with a world of states already existent. Man cannot be taken separately from these states. And yet, man does take himself separately from these states. Man is not simply a body, and yet most people consider themselves simply a body. And when I say that, I say that they think that their mind is their brain, and that's part of the body. The creation of man is not merely the creation of a visible body of legs, arms, head, etc. Man, his psychology, his possible history, all his potentialities, all his emotions, thoughts, moods, and attitudes constitute his creation. All this is man, not just what is visible, not just what we can see, which is the body. We imagine, of course, that any state that we're in, sorrow, resentment, joy, suspicion, anxiety, whatever it is, is something quite unique to ourselves. Nobody has ever felt this before. This is the worst possible thing that could ever... This is the worst pain. This is the worst divorce. This is the worst wound. When I hit my thumb with this hammer, it was the worst that it could go on and on. But it's just that's the way we are. Because we are so subjective. We are so attached to these bodies. This makes it splendidly attractive. So you can see how attracted this is to us. I'm the only one who's ever suffered in this way. You can see that this is such a wonderful song. We want to take this song up. <gasps> Woe is me. It does not occur to us that we are touching one of the already-made states common to man and belonging to his creation. Millions of people have been through this. That can't be. Millions of people have been through this. This is a state. This is a state of consciousness that everyone goes through. Everyone. Just like everyone goes through puberty if they live that long. Well, yes, but that's a physical thing. But this is not the same thing. No, what he's saying is, no, it is the same thing. It is just not visible to us in an outward form. As a rule. Although, you can learn to see it. You can learn to see the inside by what appears on the outside. It is possible to do that. It's misused by a lot of people. But that doesn't mean it's not possible. It just means it's misused. Because, well, what? We misuse things. We were talking on the way over in the car about the government and, you know, things. And I said, you know, the government is not the problem. We're the problem. 
The government only has us to choose from. The only people that the government can put in office are people like us. And people like us are selfish, greedy, fearful, self-serving. And that's the truth of it. That's the way we naturally are. And the effort and the time that it takes to rise above that, to drag yourself up out of that, is so time-consuming, so energy-consuming. Who has time for public office? Who has time to serve humanity in a public office? When it's so easy to serve yourself in a public office, or to serve your friends in a public office. I don't know what we were talking about. You know, Diana is famous for counting how many sesame seeds there are in a teaspoon of sesame seeds. I said, do you know that the government could spend $10 million in 10 years to find out how many sesame seeds are in a teaspoon when they could have paid Diana 50 bucks to do it in half a day or however many hours it took? But they won't. And the only people who will be enriched by that study will be the lawmakers and their friends who counted the sesame seeds or who procured the sesame seeds or who procured the teaspoon or who found out the exact right teaspoon and who found the exact right sesame seeds and then who made the machine that strained out the sesame seeds so that they were all the same size. There were no big ones and no little ones. They were all the same size and on and on and on. And they would spend years and millions of dollars. And what would we get from that? What we would get from that is screwed. And what the politicians would get from that would be money, and their friends would get money, and, and on and on it goes. Why is that? It's because of who we are. You and I, all the people on this planet, scattered, fragmented, selfish, separate, three-brained beings who don't know whether we're coming or going. But imagine that we're the wisest, strongest, most intelligent people that have ever graced this planet and this universe. My guess is, is that a lot of people just turned off the podcast, <laughs> which is fine by me. I'm happy to say au revoir, adios, que te vaya bien, whatever, you know, have a nice life, whatever, just leave me alone. I didn't ask you to come here. I'm not selling anything. Go away, be happy, live long and prosper, whatever. That's about all I know about those things. What he's saying is, we imagine, of course, that any state that we're in is unique to ourselves. That makes it splendidly attractive. It doesn't occur to us that we're touching one of the already-made states common to man and belonging to his creation. This is part of growing up. More than this, Blake saw all possible human situations as part of the creation of man. That with man, every possibility was created. We can't fathom that because that's not how we create things. How do we create things? Well, let's take automobiles, for instance. Who thought that airbags would send shrapnel into people's faces when somebody bumped into something and would throw shrapnel into people's faces and put their eyes out or cut them up? Who thought that? Who had that possibility in mind? Because we are so limited, we can't think of all possibilities created with something. Blake saw that all possible human situations as part of the creation of man. He saw every aspect, every plot and drama of human life as already worked out, as mere possibilities as long as we are not in them, but is overpoweringly real when we are in them. When somebody else gets a divorce, it's like, oh, that's too bad. When you get a divorce, it's like, Wah! somebody else's mother dies, it's like, oh, I, I really, I feel terrible. And you may shed a tear. When your mother dies, it's a whole different story. He saw them as designs, patterns, or what he called sculptures. In the following quotation, Los, soul, is his personification of time. 
All things acted on earth are seen in the bright sculptures of Los's halls, and every age renews its powers from these works, with every pathetic story possible to happen from hate or wayward love, and every sorrow and distress is carved here. Every affinity of parents, marriages, and friendships are here in this great hall of sculptures. They're all here, every possibility, in all their various combinations wrought with wondrous art. All that can happen to man in his pilgrimage of 70 years. A similar idea is found in the Slavonic version of Enoch, where the seer is shown the entire world in time from beginning to end and everything relating to man and the lives of men. Blake penetrates the illusion of passing time. He is not a poet of passing time, a singer of regrets. All his thought is imbued with the sense of a higher dimensional world. I see the past, present, and future existing all at once before me. He views all that has existed in the space of 6,000 years, permanent and not lost, not lost nor vanished, and every little act, word, work, and wish that has existed, all remaining still. Again, everything exists, and not one sigh, nor smile, nor tear, one hair, nor particle of dust, not one can pass away. And of his figure, Los, both time and space obey my will. I, in six thousand years, walk up and down, for not one moment of time is lost, nor one event of space unpermanent. But all remain, every fabric of six thousand years remains permanent, though on earth all things vanish and are seen no more. They vanish not from me. You get it? We're like the two-dimensional paper people seeing this cross-section of the pencil. But in the third dimension, it's not a cross-section of me. I see the whole pencil. You're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. But from the higher level, you can see that, well, you're limited by the dimension that you're stuck in. All you can see is the cross-section. I don't blame you. But the two-dimensional people do blame the people in the third dimension for seeing something that they can't see. We call them witches. We call them sorcerers. We call them mystics. We call them a lot of things. And mostly, we kill them. At all points of time, things are being refashioned. But wherever a man may be inserted into the time world, he's in touch at his ordinary level of consciousness with these states which Blake sees in vision as a hall of sculptures. Now, get this, you see. Man is inserted into time. You were inserted in the time. At a certain moment in time, you were inserted. You were born. And at a certain moment, you will exit. Whether or not you exit time, I don't know. But you will exit something that is related to this body. Whatever constraints this body puts upon our consciousness in time, you will exit that when you lay down the body, when you leave your body. You'll leave it here, and something will be different. You will have some time constraint taken away. It will be gone with your body. On this point, Blake's psychological teaching, as I understand it, is that ordinarily man is nothing but states and has no proper separate existence. Okay, in the terms that you have heard for years and years from me, you are a function of life. You are run by the events of life. Pat sent me an email the other day. Rex was stopped, had his truck stopped out by the mailbox, and she pulled up to say hi, and Rex didn't see her, and he pulled forward, and she was just kind of sitting there, and as he pulled forward, his trailer hit the bumper of her car and scratched it and dented it. And she was beside herself because she's so identified with the car. And so, you know, she said, all I could do is just sit there in horror. Wasn't that what she said? Basically. Yeah. Because... Except that was awful. I just yeah, that was it, awful. 
Nothing she could do was awful. And of course, that's just exactly what he's saying. Ordinarily, man is nothing but states and has no proper separate existence. Can you see that she had no proper separate existence from the car and from the event that was going on? All she could do was sit there and it was awful. And that's what he's talking about. The states are permanent. Man passes temporarily into one or another. And when any one state, it is quite real and all other states are shadowy. Now, let's think back to the time that you got out of your little Honda station wagon and it rolled back and hit that Samoan preacher's Cadillac. You remember that state? Was it anything like the state with the car? And that's my point. Very much like it. It's like, all I could do is look at it and think, oh, this is awful. There's nothing I can do. And that's what I'm talking about. And that's what Blake is talking about. These states are there. They're permanent. And we go in and out of them. We have the power to go in and out of them. But ordinarily, we have no power to separate ourselves from them. In order to get the power to separate yourself from them, you have to make enormous effort, enormous effort over a long period of time. And it can't be just effort. You can't just struggle wildly. You see, if someone's drowning and they make a lot of effort, that doesn't mean they won't drown. Unless they make the right effort and swim, they're going to wear themselves out and drown. This is the same thing. Why we think we should automatically be able to reach these states of consciousness is absurd to me. That's like thinking you should, you should be able to swim. When you're born, you should just be able to swim. When you're born, you should be able to fly an airplane. When you're born, you should be able to ride a bicycle. Really? Why? Why shouldn't you have to make the effort to learn that? Well, because, I don't know, because it's just not fair. And that's us. Yes. So these permanent states, yes. are they like, like layers of film across Let's the, look at them just the whole earth that, that people we just kind of like mechanically bob through? I wouldn't say that so much as, let's just say there are different floors in this 50, we made a 50-story building. They're just different floors in that building. And you're on an elevator, but you push a button and you think the button means something. But let's face it, you push buttons all day long and it doesn't mean a thing. Does that mean you're in control? Because if it did mean you're in control, then when Rex was pulling forward and scraping the bumper of the car, Pat could have just pushed a button and gotten out of there. <laughs> but she didn't have any control because those buttons are just like the buttons at crosswalks. They don't mean a thing. They're just for something for people to push until the light changes. <laughs> and they're the same for all people. Absolutely. All the time. That's right. The building is the same building all the time, and every floor is the same floor all the time, forever and ever and ever, and you visit the floor. And there's some floors you visit over and over and over and over, and other floors you never visit, because you're so busy screwing around on that floor that you never get up to that floor. Stick with the ones that were comfortable or uncomfortable. We stick with the ones that are familiar to us, the ones we have learned to navigate. It doesn't matter how horrible they are. It doesn't matter to us. If we've learned to navigate them, what does it matter? Some people take great pride in navigating difficult things. They look forward to difficult things. And that's what makes us think we have control. That's part of what makes us think we have control. The other part is we are just so proud, so vain, so arrogant. And then we have this imagination. We can imagine anything, especially about our prowess and our intelligence and our ability to do. We think that because we're pushing that button, it's doing something. It is. It's occupying you. That's what it's doing. It's occupying you. It's occupying your finger or your thumb, whatever you're mashing it with. Startling ideas. And I can see by your furrowed brow that this is like, oh, my God. 
Yes, <laughs> that's right. See, unforgiveness, for example, is a state. It's one of those floors. And some people spend their entire lives milling around on that floor. Finding people not to forgive. Finding situations not to forgive. Do you get my drift? Yes. Then there's another floor. Falling in love. This floor is called falling in love. And some people just go from one cubicle to the next. Falling in love. Over and over and over again. And they love it. It's thrilling. Some people just go from one accident to another. One sickness to another. You can see the pattern. And you know, the thing is, is there's so many on the lower floors, they're all pretty much the same. They're just painted different colors. This one down here is red. This one up here is orange. This one up here is yellow. We are, by our own abdication of our abilities, we make ourselves victims of life by abdicating our rightful powers and place in the universe. It's not that way at first, because you don't have choice until you are touched in some way by sea influence. Then, at that moment, you may not have a lot of choice, but your choice at that moment is to believe it, accept it, allow it in, examine it, or not. If you dismiss it out of hand, you made your choice. If you say, huh, I need to look at this. If you're like Moses, and you see this burning bush, and you say, oh, that can't be right. There's no such thing as a bush that's burning isn't consumed. And you just turn away. I must be seeing things. I need a drink. You know, I need a drink of water. It's sunstroke or something. Okay, that's one way to handle it. But the other way is, Moses looks at it and says, wow, this is really curious. i got to go over there and check this out. That's the difference between Moses and not Moses. All these stories are pointing to the same thing all the time in all esoteric literature. And that's why I say Don Quixote is esoteric literature. If you can bring a state to it where you can reap what's there. But you see, if the earth were made of gold, a man would die for a hand full of dirt. It's because we don't have enough of a perspective. Our values are all screwed up by being stuck in this Sancho Panza body with these Sancho Panza appetites. And it takes tremendous will and right knowledge to begin to drag yourself up out of that. And all of your friends and everybody in your village will be trying to drag you back down. In the story, Sancho Panza has to leave his wife and children to go follow Don Quixote. He has to abandon them. Does that sound familiar to you? Anyone who doesn't hate mother, father, sister, brother is not worthy to be my disciple? Does that seem familiar? Now, of course, some people go, oh, that's just horrible. It's because they don't understand the esoteric meaning of it. They don't understand the deeper spiritual meaning of it. They take it literally, thinking, I have to hate my mother and father. No, you don't. That's idiotic. The guy who says, love your neighbors yourself, tells you to hate your mother and your father. So what's the problem here? Well, he's obviously a maniac. No, you obviously don't understand the meaning. So if I tell you, keep an eye out for me, and you pluck your eye out and put it on the table or at the front door, does that mean I'm an idiot or you are? It means you didn't understand that that was a figure of speech, an idiom. We are so limited. When you think about it, when you start to get this, it's like, oh my God, God, I take refuge in you. I am out of it. I cannot do this alone. And the truth is, you cannot do this alone. No one can escape from this prison alone. You've got to have help from the outside. You've got to have help from the outside. There is no way. And if you will, if you choose to see it this way, that's what the story of Jesus is about. Someone came from the outside and showed you how to get out. And for some people, they couldn't understand it. Other people, they couldn't be bothered. 
other people. I'm not leaving here. I get, what is it, three squares and a bed? I'm not leaving here. I get free dental, free medical. I got a place out of the rain. I'm not going out there and work. Here, I got my little job. I do it. I don't do it. Who cares? There, forget that. Here, I can hardly fail. There, I can't succeed. You see? Like Charles Manson said, you think you're punishing me by putting me in prison. He said, I grew up in this system. This is my home. I'm going back home. He was in juvie as a child. He was always in the system. He knows the system. He knows how to work the system. He's got it dialed. That's his homeland. That's his security. To put him in there is not punishment. To leave him out here is punishment for him and for us. Because there's no way he could fit. Because being in the system does not suit you for being in the world. It just doesn't. And it never will because it was never designed to. Okay, so just like the floors of this building, the states are permanent. Man passes temporarily into one or another. When in any one state, it's quite real and all the other states are shadowy. We're always in one state or another state. In one human situation or another human situation. All these are already created. Every possible situation is fully worked out. It's just like going to a department store. And they have these different departments. Which is probably why they call it a department store. And there's the furniture department. And in the furniture department, you'll have these little living room setups, these little kitchen setups, these little kitchenette setups, these little bedroom setups. And you go into there, and sure enough, there's a bed, and there's end tables, and there's a chest of drawers, and there's lamps, and there's bedspreads and pillows, and all the things you would expect to find in a bedroom, all the things that they want to sell you. And if you go into the kitchen, what do you think you're going to find? So all these little setups, and they're already created, they're already there. And you go and you visit them. That's all that he's saying, is that life is like that. And you're going to be in one state or another state, in one human situation or in another human situation. All these are already created. Every possible situation is fully worked out, just like the bedroom suite is there and the dining room suite is there, and it's all right there. And you just go from one department to another department, or from one floor to another floor. Now, we can't see it this way. We can't see our own daily situations objectively as this is called thinking one is misunderstood. This is called losing something valuable. <laughs> this is called being ill. This is called being angry. This is called self-pity. This is called blaming others. This is called being deceived. We have not sufficient power of insight or detachment, non-identification, and consequently are merely the state itself. Yet the state is not us any more than are the eyes that make up the psychological kaleidoscope in us. I know this is nothing new, but it's put in a different way, and that's why you're going, oh, oh, really? I've told you these things for years. And for some reason or other, either you got it and forgot it, or you didn't get it, and you thought you got it, or you imagined you got it, I don't know. But this is now, and that was then. So this is what we've got now. The individual, the I of Tennyson, is not his states, but not having any contact with this individuality, we are always merely ready-made state. Blake taught that what he called divine imagination in man, which he connects with the individual identity, is separate from state. From what state? From any state. The imagination is not a state. It is the human existence itself. Affection or love become a state when divided from imagination. The individual identity is eternal. That is, not in passing time, not in the momentary eyes. But if man is nothing but his states and the imitation of other people's states and confounds himself with these states, he never attains existence in himself. 
And this is true. If you are constantly driven by life, you will never exist. Can you see that you will never exist? That you are just a piece of paper blown in the wind? Or a ship on the sea being tossed about without a rudder? Being tossed about by the wind and the waves? So you don't exist in yourself. He acts from state, not from himself. He thinks that state is himself and doesn't understand that there is something in him that must be separated from state. And that towards every situation that life can produce, every sculpture of Los, he must be more than that situation or state. You must be more than the situation or state. Or else, you see, you will have no power to resist it. Unless we know, unless we grasp and seek to transcend states, they will always recur. There will always be another car. There will always be another dent or bump. There will always be that state again for you. Unless you learn to transcend the state. He saw that the state in which one sees the universe as the creation of a demon is merely a state, as something that could be got beyond by recognizing it as state, by seeing what it is. Can you see that if you could say to yourself, oh, this is called thinking that I'm misunderstood. Can you see the power of that? You're separating from it. You're pulling yourself out of it. This is the power here. There's a dialogue between Christ and Peter which seems to belong to this question of state. I've quoted Blake as saying that all love and affection, when divided from imagination, are nothing but state. Christ asks Peter three times if he loves him, and Peter replies in the same affirmative. But Christ uses the word agape in his first and second question, and Peter replies always with the purely emotional word philine. It is obvious that the quality of love is the question at issue. Well, sure, it's obvious if you can see that in the Greek there are different words being used. So it's obvious then. Is your love mere state or more? Let me just tell you right now, from my experience with you, you and me, your love is mere state because I can change it in the blink of an eye. I can change your love for me into anger, hatred, resentment. I can change it in the blink of an eye with just a few words. If that doesn't convince you that your love is a mere state, then you don't want to be convinced. Guess what? Yep, you guessed it. This is where we're stopping. We'll pick up next time with, you guessed it, what's next? Truth is